0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Julia Bernier, and I am a consultant advisor here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management colleague, Brian Coleman. Portfolio Manager on our Private Credit Strategies, and Lynette Ferguson, Head of Investment Specialist in the Americas for that group. Brian, Lynette, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks
2: for having us. Yeah, thanks.
0: Of course. Well, we're certainly excited to have you both here. Private credit has been a widely discussed topic recently, particularly over the year-to-date period, and so we'll plan to shed some light on what we are seeing in the current market environment. And how it is impacting credit in real time. So Lynette, we'll start with you. Can you just broadly describe what exactly has happened to the credit landscape as a result of COVID-19?
1: Sure. So let's start by saying that essentially what we've done is at the moment we've created the most interesting investing landscape for credit in over a decade. So that's the first thing that's worth stating. It's incredibly exciting times we're looking at credit. We went from a very late cycle but robust economy to deep recession, most of the world in a space of a month. And that was brutal for, I think, a lot of us personally, but in terms of credit, it had a huge impact. But some of the opportunities were in public markets, and they were immediate. But they were also fleeting because of the speed of the government response. In the private markets, markdowns are slower, and it will take much longer for the real effects to feed through. So what did COVID do? Well, there's certain industries which have taken an extreme direct hit from COVID. I think airlines, they're probably the easiest example. But for the rest of the economy, the phrase that you don't see who's swimming without any clothes until the tide goes out comes to mind. But for industries that were already weak, maybe due to structural issues, think Brits and more to retailers facing online competition, COVID really pushed them over the edge. And those are really the names we've heard so far in terms of bankruptcies. Do you think Neiman Marcus, there's a whole host of retailers that have come through? But remember, we're a late cycle before COVID. And so you're having excess capital flowing into private credit in particular, which meant we're already seeing practices such as weaker covenants, excess leverage levels, and that's going to impact what the path forward looks like, extending the time period for companies before they really have to face their creditors and possibly lowering coverage as a result. It's also worth saying that COVID isn't over. So there's countries which thought they'd beaten it, which are still seeing small outbreaks, and countries like the US, which are still battling the first wave, let's face it. That means that we continue to face social distancing measures of varying degrees, and that's going to limit the extent of any recovery, and it's going to create a great deal of uncertainty in the near and medium term for otherwise healthy industries and asset types. All that is going to feed into opportunities for credit investors. You know, on the private credit, sort of think direct lending, which is really on the lips of most investors pre-COVID. Those loan- loans will often to fund things like M&A, growth. Unsurprisingly, that type of lending for now is pretty much dried up but it's being replaced by other types of sort of stress lending, which Brian's going to go into in more detail in a moment. So new loan origination there has really slowed to a trickle as borrowers and lenders are coming to grips with the new environment. And asset sales also, we've sort of seen from bank balance sheets and things, they've also slowed.
0: Thanks. So picking up on that comment around uncertainty, Brian, I'll address this next question to you. So given that uncertainty on the horizon, what do you find confidence in from an investment perspective as you look to the next strategy you will invest in? I guess phrased differently, what is your game plan in terms of investing in the near term, the medium term, and the long
2: term? Yeah, sure. So I agree. We're certainly in a very uncertain economic environment right now. The outlook's very hazy, and we can't pretend to be able to forecast the future. The last few months have been unusual, not only with respect to the very sharp economic downdraft we experienced, but also the amount of government support we've had for both corporates and consumers here in the US and in Europe. And there are pretty big question marks around how borrowers are going to behave once that support starts to roll off. So in terms of our game plan, we have viewed the investment opportunity since March really coming in three stages. As Lynette referred to, we already saw the first stage, which involved forced selling and liquidations of liquid credit instruments in the secondary market. And that really occurred In March and April and somewhat through Q2. We've seen opportunities during that period to buy high-quality corporate and structured credit at discounted prices, and those investments offered really strong downside protection and great convexity to the upside, but spread since then in the liquid secondary market really retraced, and that first stage is now generally at an end, I think. The second phase, which I think we're in today, we see a few different types of opportunities. First, there are market participants who still need to delever and find additional liquidity. And this has led to investments like highly secure rescue finance deals that we've seen and the acquisition of loan pools from certain weaker hands. The other thing that we're seeing now is the reemergence of some lending in areas that were really unaffected by COVID-19 and the recession, and in some cases may even benefit from what's occurred in Those could be areas like software, alternative energy, parts of the healthcare industry. The third phase, which really hasn't arrived yet, in my view, we expect to see, on the one hand, a return to normal in terms of lending, and on the other hand, a wave of restructuring and balance sheet cleanup. And so, with respect to that former part, when we start to see more acquisition activity in the private equity world and similarly in other areas like real estate, then new lending volume will pick up correspondingly, and I think that the terms that lenders will see during that period as we emerge from the depths of the recession should certainly be better than what we saw prior to March in terms of lower leverage, higher coupon, better documentation. And then with respect to the distressed debt, quite a lot to do. That's my best guess, but it's going to take some time. And in the corporate world, borrowers have pushed out maturities And they've really been able to push off the day of reckoning, given a preponderance of Cov light, as Lynette said. So it would be interesting to see how long that opportunity takes to develop. And similarly with banks, how they handle bad loans. There's been accounting changes over the last few years to incentivize banks to clean up bad loans quickly. But my guess is, based on history, that happens in the U.S. relatively quickly. But Europe might be a lot slower.
0: Thanks, Brian. So I guess turning back to Lynette and picking up on some of those comments you mentioned. So Lynette. We get this question a lot, but what would you say to investors concerned that they may have missed the opportunity because of how quickly the spreads have tightened?
1: Yeah, this is a question we're getting from a lot of investors right now who are nervous because they've seen the sharp rally, that they've missed it, that you know, it's kind of over. And yeah, you did see a lot of forced selling in March and April across the market. And there was a lot of opportunities to buy high quality liquid credit at steep discounts. That opportunity has largely passed. That's true. You might see some sporadic opportunities in some corners of the market that are more niche, maybe things like convertibles and certain areas like CLOs, as you see racing downgrades come through. But you do have a lot of capital already raised trying to take advantage of that. So you need to be careful who you're working with. And so the advantages that they have if you're kind of looking at those public market opportunities. On the private side, and this sort of feeds into what Brian was was saying, that's going to take a lot longer to come through. I mean, the opportunity is going to be huge. It's barely begun. And that whole covenant-like phenomenon means it's going to take longer than would otherwise be the case for defaults to really come through. And if anything, to be honest, we probably think that investors are underestimating how long that process is. And you're really sort of looking, you know, kind of 12 to 24 months before the real sort of peak in defaults we think will take place. But that's not so straightforward, I think, from an investor's timing perspective. And that's something investors also need to think about. It's not just, you know, so what time are the actual opportunities in the market, but for them, when are the investing opportunities? When do they get to actually put the money to work? And that's something to think about because you're going to have investors who, depending on the type of vehicle they have, are going to be raising money now, which actually they might not be calling down for another 12 to 24 months. So investors can't just wait for, say, 12 months and then allocate. They need to be thinking now in terms of who are the managers they want to be working with so they can actually make sure that they get exposure to the best opportunities.
0: Thanks, Lynette. So I guess looking towards the future, Brian, I understand none of us have a crystal ball to know what's going to happen Through your view, what are you thinking about? Should there be a second wave of severe COVID-19 infections or another severe economic shutdown?
2: Yeah, so as you said, we don't try and forecast what's going to happen with the economy, but instead, just try and plan for the worst. I think that you know, in the best case, obviously, we'd see a V-shaped recovery for the global economy, and I sincerely hope that happens. But we can't ignore the worst-case outcomes And so today, that means trying to find investments that can hold up through a prolonged recession. And these are either investments that we deem to be unaffected by the pandemic and recession, their underlying assets or businesses that will be robust and affected, or there'll be investments where the return isn't that bad in the worst case. So say a mid-single-digit kind of IRR in a very bad economic outcome, but where we have considerable upside if things turn out to be better than the worst case. So that's really how we're looking at the possibility of a further outbreak or more economic turbulence to come.
0: Thanks. And Brian, maybe another question for you. I know, you know, kind of pre-COVID world, direct lending was such a big topic and something that was very relevant that we were out discussing and people were thinking about. Can you just kind of explain what's happened in this space and what your outlook is? You know, is this something that people should be thinking to go back in on or just kind of curious to hear your thoughts around that space?
2: Sure. So the outlook, it depends, obviously, if you're talking about loans made pre-COVID or afterwards. And what we're seeing with loans that were made pre-COVID is that so far in general, they've held up relatively well like the public high yield market the companies that have really struggled since march are those that were either already struggling prior to march or where social distancing policies essentially wiped out all or a large part of the firm's revenue but generally speaking it seems like borrowers in the middle market have managed through the intense liquidity squeeze that we saw in march and april and are slowly starting to see top line recovery which is good news that's not to say that there won't be problems, and I think most people expect to see elevated defaults in the space going forward, just like they expect to see that in high-yield and leveraged loans. Going forward, with respect to new loan production, at the moment, there's very little. There's not much sponsor activity going on in the private equity world, and lending won't occur until that starts to happen. But I think that historically, if we look at other instances of coming out of the recession, the terms improve for the lender. And we're seeing that now with the few deals that are getting done. So they have modestly higher coupons, probably a turn or so of lower leverage and certainly better documentation than what we saw going into March. So I think it's an asset class that's here to stay. And I think that as we start to have better clarity on the economy and the pandemic is more under control than we'll start to see pretty interesting and good production coming out
0: of this space. Thanks, Brian. Lynette, turning the next question back over to you, clearly this is a space that many investors are looking to make first-time allocations to or increased allocations to, but what are some areas of concern that investors should keep top of mind as they enter this space?
1: Yes, yeah, so probably the first thing to think about is diversification. March was actually a good example of this because the sell-off was was sharp, but you saw across different types of credit strategies, different types of collateral or borrower types, the the experience was actually really different. And so if you looked at, say, our private credit portfolios, they sort of fell, I would say, on average, maybe 4 to 5% in March. Whereas you looked at the public high-yield market, and you were down like 11%, 13%, depending on which index you were benchmarked to. If you looked in structured credit, it wasn't uncommon to see funds that had fallen by 20 to 30% or more. And so that diversification point, just on a simple basis, is, is really important. We've heard a lot of people talking about corporate distress. That's really the big opportunity that's in the headlines where everybody tends to think about. And we do think that is going to be an area of real opportunity. But we'd say you shouldn't be putting all your eggs in one basket. And so part of this is just because of the uncertainty of the outlook. It's not quite clear what's going to be going forward from here. You know, When will we get a vaccine? Where will there be? What sort of extent of social distancing do people have to do? And just in terms of how it affects the economy more broadly, which is also tied into things like government support. And so all these things make that uncertainty mean that you don't really want to be just exposed to one type of credit strategy. You want to be trying to take advantage of as many different strategies as possible so you can try and get the best return. There's other collateral types like real estate, real assets, the different sorts of lending strategies as well that people should focus on. There's also from a ge- geographical perspective. I mean, we tend to focus primarily on the U.S. and Europe. So We're sort of broadly looking at different regions that are going to have sort of the most opportunities. And if you look back to 2008, you can see quite clearly that these regions behave very differently post a crisis. So generally, U.S. banks are much quicker to provision for losses, much quicker to sell their assets and really sort of sort themselves out post a crisis. Europe tends to be much slower at that, and we still actually were seeing European banks selling off non-performing loans that were from 2008. That was still going on right up until COVID, and that sort of gives you a sense that that's a much longer, slower opportunity set from that perspective. Europe also has a much stronger social safety net, and so that's meant that its experience in terms of COVID for businesses, for people, has been very different, and that will impact in terms of the types of opportunities from a credit perspective that there are going forward they've also handled COVID very differently, that is worth saying, because it means that the lockdowns in different countries aren't going to be maybe as long. So the US maybe hasn't locked down as much, but the impacts actually could end up being much longer because we're still sort of fighting an outbreak here, whereas in certain parts of Europe, they'll begin to start thinking about getting back to normal because they were much more strict in the beginning. So both regions are going to be very interesting in terms of opportunities, but they're going to differ in terms of characteristics of those. In terms of something, and this kind of ties in slightly to your question before, is people do sort of comment on things like too much money chasing distressed. And there's certainly lots of managers raising dislocation funds. And so this ties back into my saying that you want to be careful in terms of thinking how you're profiting from this strategy. You know, there's been a number of very large distressed funds that have been raised. You know, I think the $15 billion fund that has sent in the headlines recently, that so has recently closed. But for those sorts of funds, you've got to think that they can only really take advantage of opportunities of a certain size because they're going to need to be big enough to actually make a difference for those managers. And so, in a way, as we have pre-COVID, the larger those size of funds are going to face more competition. And so, being able to use a manager who's maybe sort of smaller size, who's going to be more nimble, actually might be able to kind of get better returns. The other thing maybe just to kind of comment on is in terms of structure. So there's hedge funds, which are obviously sort of open-ended vehicles. There's going to be, I think, primarily a lot of people are going to be trying to exploit this via closed-end, draw-down vehicles. Both types of vehicles have their pros and their cons. Probably one key thing to think about, no matter what vehicle you're talking about, is that legacy portfolio. This is particularly an issue when you're looking at hedge funds. So you need to be careful about what portfolio you're actually exposed to when you're investing in. Do you have legacy assets that actually may be They wouldn't be in if they had the choice, but they were holding coming into this whole period. Or do they have a clean portfolio where they can go out now and look for the best opportunities? So all of those, in addition to the normal due diligence that you would do, I think are important things to think about. That due diligence side is probably another dimension that is making it harder also for people. We're hearing of a lot of investors who it's more difficult for them to do due diligence on new funds. So either working with somebody who's done that due diligence for you. Also, particularly, you know, making sure you are still being careful in terms of the protections you have around your investment when you're going in.
0: Thanks, Lynette. To Brian, I guess my next question is more of a two-part question for you. Given the sustained growth we've seen in the private credit space over the last few years, can you just spend a minute describing the various strategies that we're currently seeing? And you made some brief comments on this earlier in the call, but are there any areas within that that they not have been impacted? as hard by COVID-19 and providing levels of opportunity.
2: It's absolutely true. The private credit space has grown quite considerably over the last 10 years. I think, frankly, most of that growth has come in only a few areas, notably the direct lending space and the middle market companies in both the U.S. and Europe. And maybe more recently, we've seen a lot of capital flow into distressed corporate debt strategies. Mm -hmm. We've always tried to take a much broader approach to private credit and we look for investments across a variety of collateral and borrower types, and those range from standard areas like real estate-backed lending or corporate lending, consumer lending, or niche or off-the-run areas like alternative energy finance or healthcare finance. And I would say certainly not all of those areas have been swamped with capital. You know, the other broad way that we look at strategies are through the lens of new loan origination versus asset acquisition, and I think that we're certainly finding interesting areas in both of those spots as well to answer your second question, yes, we are finding areas that we view as much less impacted by COVID and the recession. Just to take some examples, for instance, in the real estate space, certain segments like retail and lodging are clearly minefields, but other areas like industrial and multifamily, I think much less so. Some of the niche areas I just mentioned have managed to avoid much of an impact like alternative energy, where we're seeing much higher yields for the same kind of high quality exposure that we were Looking for pre COVID at sort of an 8% unlevered. We're now getting at 12 to 13% unlevered. So there are definitely areas that have not been touched. And those are frankly the ones right at the moment where we're more focused on.
0: Thanks. And then in terms of timing, what are some indicators that investors should recognize as signals that it's time to invest in credit, particularly in this volatile environment?
2: Yeah, it's a hard question. I think. Right now, you know, as I said, there's a tremendous amount of economic uncertainty. And as a result, we have a preference for fairly defensive investments that are either recession-resistant or can survive a prolonged downturn. But that said, there are certainly plenty of things to do right now with that defensive mindset. And we think we can achieve a mid-high single-digit return in a very dire economic scenario and a mid-teens type of return in a more benign recovery from those investments Over time, when we have more clarity around the taming of the pandemic and the outlook for the economy, I think that we will take more risk. And I think that that clarity will coincide with greater volume of new loan origination and ultimately corporate restructuring and bank balance sheet cleanup that I talked about earlier, the so-called third phase of the game plan. And once that occurs, I think that we're going to have quite a lot to do in private credit for a number of years. So, you know, I think that's my best answer is be cautious at the moment, but there are certainly interesting things to do. But then as we have a little more clarity around things, then maybe time to reach for risk.
0: So Lynette, I'll address this one to you. I know this may be an asset class where ESG principles are maybe a bit tougher to assess, but curious to hear what you think investors should be considering if viewing private credit through an ESG lens.
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. There's two ways, I think, to look at this because it very much depends on the sort of investor that you are. So, for some investors, ESG integration is what they're focused on. So, are ESG principles considered? Are they taken into account? But You don't have to be an ESG thematic portfolio as such. And so, here it's going to be things like, how is a manager running their operation? What are their own HR policies? Do they have an ESG policy in place? Basically, it's looking at how they're running the business and how are they sort of considering their investments, but not forcing them to make the investment decisions or business in line with ESG. And I think that is increasingly the norm, there's an increasing number of managers I think who are seeing that as more normal. I mean, certainly with the managers we speak to most now either have or are in the process of putting an ESG policy into place, for example. And we work with them on a number of different policies they might have that sort of in terms of making sure that they're trying to be sort of, a, you know, it's fair in the after their workforce and all these things that fit in to within sort of an ESG from a social perspective. So that's more sort of from the integration. Integration is important for a lot of investors and for some, that's all they need. For those who are looking to do more ESG thematic type investing, that's probably a little bit tougher in credit. And the reason for that is that for quite a lot of investors, distressed investing in and of itself doesn't really fit within the ESG framework. And this is very personal down to different investors. But for some, it's just a strategy they're not so comfortable with because you'll often end up seeing things like job losses, restructuring of companies. And that's something that's harder for them to deal with. But what you do still see is that credit ends up having things like lending to different sorts of businesses. And so thinking of ESG that either E or the ES perspective, so for things like impact investing is where you can kind of see really that coming through. So you might have things like actually healthcare or sort of technology which fit within ESG themes but might not be labeled as ESG as such. So sometimes investors maybe actually need to look a little bit harder because managers haven't thought of themselves as ESG, but what they're doing does fit within an ESG construct. And you might have other sites of investment, which actually are quite niche. Brian mentioned in terms of alternative energy finance, where you'll have things like renewables. And actually, if anything, those have continued to go from strength to strength. But because there's less capital around, you can get higher returns in that sort of space. So there are certainly esg thematic investments to be made. But maybe sometimes investors need to think just a little bit more carefully about it to make sure they can spot them.
0: Brian and Lynette, thank you very much for your time. We hope everyone enjoyed the call today, and we thank you all for your partnership. If you have any questions or need any additional information on anything that was discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor.
3: For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts? figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax. Credit and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL in Asia-Pacific, APOC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, JP Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or JP Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586k which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the monetary authority of singapore jp morgan asset management taiwan limited jp morgan asset management japan limited which is a member of the investment trusts association japan the japan investment advisors association Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Ltd. ABN 55,143,832,080, AFSL 376,919, Copyright 2020 JPMorgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.